0: Well, good morning, gentlemen, and thank you for joining us this morning. Our first breakfast of this year. Today is January 20th in the year of our Lord, 2024. Last year, our theme for our men's breakfast came from Philippians 3.14, and you have this in front of you. It says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In short, last year, our focus was striving for eternity. This year, our theme will be different. It's going to be to be on guard while continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which comes from the book of 2 Peter, chapters three, verses 17 and 18. And Peter wrote this second epistle because he was alarmed at the false teachers that were beginning to infiltrate the church. He called on Christians to be strong, to not to be fooled, and to grow in their faith so that they could combat the heresy that was going on. In fact, if you look at these verses, verses 17 and 18, they come just after Peter is talking about the coming day of the Lord, which all of us here today know is eminent. So I wanna just read these uh, verses, uh, 2 Peter 3:17 and 18, in two different versions, just briefly, um, since we're gonna be focusing on them this year. Here is the ESV version. You, therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, knowing that the Lord will return soon. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So if you look at the same version in the LSB, it says this. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and the day of eternity. Amen. So just to summarize those verses in those different formats, we're to take care, we're to be on guard, unless we're carried away by lawless and principled men, and lose our stability and our commitment and our steadfastness. We are to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's make that our focus for the year 2024. And with that, uh, join me in a word of prayer. Please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your grace and for your Son. We thank you for the men that are here this morning We pray that you grant us strength and wisdom to stand firm and remain cautious against false teachers. Please help us to be faithful in these final days and give us the ability to discern the truth. Help us to be steadfast in our commitment to you and to your word. Amen. Now, on to our lesson. This morning, I've titled this lesson, Hell, Jeopardy Apart from Christ. Are you ready? So when Jesus was walking on this earth physically, he said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And then if you go into Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this as he was speaking to the people, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are children of light. Our light shines to draw attention to Jesus and to glorify our Father in heaven. As children of light, We are intended to shine the gospel light in a world steeped in darkness and sin. We are to radiate the light of God's love to those who we come into contact with. Imagine a ripple effect for each one of us in this room, for us shining our light around the peninsula, but greater still, imagine the whole world of Christians radiating their light. That would be an amazing sight to see that, all the Christians together and their light reflecting around the world. And that, in fact, Francis of Assisi said something very profound. He said this: He said, "All the darkness in the world cannot ex- extinguish the light of one single candle." And that's what we're to be. So let's move a little bit further in Matthew as we're going down Matthew, chapter five, verses five uh, chapter five verses 44 and 45. Jesus went on to say this as he's going on. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. So since we are God's light, we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, just as Jesus did. So with that, I'm going to share a story with you. In 1956, Jim Elliott and some of his missionary colleagues decided to go down and share the gospel with the Harani Indians. They were a notoriously violent group of people in the Amazon River basin in Ecuador. Going into the jungle, the missionaries knew that their task was dangerous. There was a good chance they'd be attacked for sharing the gospel, but they were determined to reach out to this lost tribe. But before they even settled foot in Ecuador, they decided to pray. And they prayed in advance before they got there. And they decided in advance not to use their firearms, even if attacked or if threatened. Why? Because these people did not know the Lord. And Jim Elliott said this. He said, these people can ill afford to die, but we can. The story goes on. The missionaries arrived at a riverbed close to the tribe was living, and they also could land an airplane. And so what they did is for weeks they would fly an airplane over the tribe, and they would drop a rope and a bucket with little items in it, salt, ribbon, fruit, gifts. And they used a loudspeaker on the airplane, and they had learned a few words of the Haranian language. And they would shout, friends, peace, meet us, and they would repeat that over and over on the loudspeaker. One day, three Haranian Indians showed up to their beachhead. It was an older woman, a younger woman, and a younger man. It appeared like the older woman was more of a chaperone, and it looked like the young man was enamored with the young lady. They spent most of their time that day with the missionaries, and they even took the young man on a plane flight. At some point, the young man and the young lady left, somewhat abruptly, and the older woman decided to stay. When the young couple returned back to camp, The girl's older brother approached them angrily and he said, why did you leave the camp? And the young man became afraid of her brother and also the tribe. So he lied and told him they were attacked by the missionaries. At that point, the tribe became very agitated and excited and started wanting to go after the missionaries. The older woman came and tried to settle them down and told them, no, the missionaries were friendly. But the next day, the tribe sent 10 of their warriors and a few of their women to the beachhead and they sent the women in front of them and told them to get the men into the river. So at the point in time that the missionaries came into the river, they were killed. They were attacked and killed. Jim Elliott and four of his missionary friends were killed that day. But rather than risk condemning these savages to the possibility of eternity in hell, they allowed themselves to be killed even though they died with pistols at their sides. This story shows Probably the most compelling and courageous application of loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. Incredibly, that's not the end of the story. The widows of those dead missionaries went back to the tribe, and over the course of the next several years, they brought the Huranian Indian community to the Lord. Because of the death of these missionary men, the fierce Ecuadorian tribe of the Haranian Indians turned from a life of violence and death to a life of peace in Jesus. They also made a Hollywood movie about this in 2005 called End of the Spear. And the purpose I'm sharing this story is to show the love, the compa- the compassion, the conviction of these missionaries for the eternal souls of these Huronian Indians. They were so concerned for their souls that they let themselves they chose to get killed instead of killing them. They did not want the Huronians to die in hell or the jeopardy of hell apart from Christ those missionaries were ready to die are we so that story leads me into the doc the doctrine of hell and i know hell is not a popular subject most people don't even want to talk about hell but almost everybody thinks about it i've heard it said by someone that until someone is ready to die they really don't know how to live and that resonates with me because i have many members of my life who do not know the lord people that i love my friends my children, my family, and I pray for them. I pray they come to know the Lord. And I'm sure you guys have many people in your lives in a similar situation. And as believers, we know that if our loved ones fail to come to know the Lord and remain unregenerate, they will end up in hell. And in fact, one of my loved ones told me this when I was talking to them, my loving God would never send people to hell. I'm sure you've heard something similar or all roads lead to God. There are people in this world who believe that their God, quote unquote, is too kind to be loving, too kind and loving to send anyone to hell. And the reason they believe this is because they refuse to accept God's other attributes that work in concert with love. His attributes like his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. Proverbs 14:12 says this: There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are many non-biblical ideas espoused in our society today, but the question I have for those people espousing those ideas, are they willing to give their lives for their beliefs, like Jim Elliott and his missionary friends? Hell is a real place, and it's a place where unbelievers go when they leave this earth, and they will suffer consciously under the wrath of God at as a just penalty for their sin. And it will never, ever, ever, ever end. All the people of this earth will have to give an account. There will be a review of their lives and God will not excuse their sin. If you look at Romans chapter 14, verses 11 and 12, it says this, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so then each of us will give an account of himself to god second corinthians 5:10 says this for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil lastly luke 12 chapter uh, ch- chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or anything hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. People will have to give an account. And sometimes people ask me, Why do you believe in hell? And I tell them, I believe in hell because Jesus believed in hell. In fact, there's three words in the Bible for the word hell. One of the words is Shul, or shul, Sheol, S H E O L which appears 65 times in the Old Testament. And it's used to refer to the grave or the place of punishment for the wicked. In the Greek language, there's two other words that are in there for hell. One is Hades, which is similar to Sheol, And the other one is actually Gehenna. Gehenna dates back to just Jewish history of about 750 B.C., And it's at a time where there was a king named Ahaz who was the ruler of Judah, and he adopted some of the most revolting idol-worshiping practices of the day. Among the worst practices was that of offering children as human sacrifices. In fact, King Ahaz had two of his own children burned to death. So these atrocities occurred in a place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which the prophet Jeremiah referred to as the valley of slaughter. But eventually this area was turned into a garbage dump and all the entrails and the bodies of dead animals and corpses and criminals were thrown there. It had a stench of death, a foul stench. And if you've ever driven by roadkill that's been left there for four or five days, you might get a small glimpse of what that might smell like. And in addition to all that, they threw all the garbage of Jerusalem, all the rot, all the dankness that was there. And it was constantly consumed by a fire to dispose of the noxious, the putrid smells that came from there. And there was a writer named Robert A. Morey who talked about this. And he said, he commented, it was a place where the fire never died and the worms never stopped eating. And so the name of the valley later was shortened to Gehinnom, and eventually that was translated into Gehenna. So that's where the word and the imagery of hell comes from. And the word Gehenna appears 12 times in the New Testament. And you may be surprised that out of the 10, 12 times, 11 of those times it's spoken of, it's used by Jesus himself. I'm going to just give you four, four versions of that and how he uses it. But remember, we're reading it in English. So the word is hell in English, but the underlying word is Gehenna. So Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice it says destroy soul and body. There will be a body in hell. Matthew 18, 9. And if your eye causes you to stumble, stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Matthew 23, 33, Jesus is speaking directly to scribes and Pharisees. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And lastly, Mark 9, 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. J.C. Ryle said this, people may be dead and they may be buried, but they will never be dead and gone. The day is coming when the dead will hear Christ calling them from the grave and summoning them to appear at the judgment seat of God. And not one of them will be able to refuse him. What about those vaporized in the atomic bomb or disintegrated in a fire? Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? Like a teacher who writes on a chalkboard and erases it, God can erase and recreate. He took Adam out of the dust. He made Eve from a rib. There is nothing too difficult for God. And here's the thing. Every one of us has an appointment with God. We have a divine appointment. Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed to man once to die, but after that, the judgment. So at this point, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go to the book of Luke chapter 16. And here Jesus is gonna tell us a story. And some of you probably know the story. It's about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And he's telling these stories in front of the Pharisees. And right before he gets to this story, he's just said this to the Pharisees. He's talking and he says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to these things and they were ridiculing him. Another version says they were sneering at Jesus. So Jesus is about to give us this small glimpse into the other side. But before we actually read the passage verse by verse, I'm going to use what John MacArthur did. He looked at this verse and he brought out all these different what we call reversals and contrast, contrast and reversals, a contrast in life, a contrast in death, a contrast in eternity, a reversal in life, a reversal in death, a reversal in eternity. And this is what we're going to see in this passage. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man becomes poor and the poor man becomes rich. A rich man who has no needs and a poor man who has immense needs. Then the poor man has no needs, and the rich man has great need. There's a rich man who desires nothing, and a poor man with countless desires. Then a poor man with no desires, and a rich man with great desire. There's a rich man who feasts sumptuously, and a poor man who has no food. Then a poor man who feasts, and a rich man who can't even get a drop of water. There's a rich man who has everything and a poor man who has nothing. Then a poor man who has everything and a rich man who has nothing. There's a rich man who's honored and a poor man who's humiliated. Then there's a poor man who's honored and a rich man who's who's humiliated. There's a rich man who is somebody and a poor man who's a nobody, then a poor man who's a somebody and a rich man who's a nobody." There's a rich man who's satisfied and a poor man who's suffering. Then there's a poor man who's satisfied and a rich man who's suffering. There's a poor man who seeks help and a rich man who gives none. There's a rich man who seeks help and a poor man who cannot even give help. There's a poor man with a name and a rich man with no name. And there's a poor man with no dignity in life and a rich man with tremendous dignity. Then there's a poor man in death that has... All, the, all dignity, and a rich man who ends up in indignity. And so it goes on. So, with that, I'd like to get into the actual verses. So let's start with verse number one. We're going to read uh, basically chapter 16, verse by verse. We're going to start with verse number one, and then we'll read the rest of it. So, in verse one, it says this. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day." First of all, remember who's listening to this story. There are the Pharisees. And in their mind, when they hear this beginning, there was a rich man, they're thinking, blessed. There was a man clothed in purple, blessed. There was a fine linen and he fared sumptuously, blessed, bless, bless. They're hearing, this man is a blessed man. And guess what? I love how Jesus turns everything on its head. Um, so then just first of all, it says certain rich man, he was extremely rich because it says this, he was dressed and clothed in fine purple. That, that fine purple dye was extremely expensive and they had to get it from a shellfish in order to put it on their clothes. Also purple represented a color of wealth, status, and power. And when you walked around with purple, people would look at you. So what it's saying is, look at me. Also the fine linen, also a sign of wealth. You guys have heard that fine Egyptian leather, linen, it's expensive, it's quality. You can see the quality, it's so good. And he also fared sumptuously every day, which means he was feasting. He could eat whatever he wanted at any time. He probably had big bashes at his party. He probably enjoyed life. He could eat anything his heart contented. He couldn't deny himself. But what did he do with all his wealth? He spent it on himself. He was indulgent and self-absorbent. Let's go to verse 20. So verse 20 says this. Now the contrast. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. A beggar, no possessions, a needy man. And it says Lazarus in the Greek. And we were talking about different names in different languages. Lazarus in the Greek is different. In Latin, the name Lazarus is Eleazar. Eleazar means God is my help. That's his name in the Latin. So here he was, a man that needed help, and he was laid at the rich man's gate. Some people say that the translation is more like thrown at the rich man's gate. Someone felt sorry for him and they threw him there. And I'm sure that the rich man would walk out and see him all the time. And also, when it says gate, the term is actually big gate. This guy had a huge house with a big gate. And it says this, he was most likely unable or disabled because it says that he was thrown there like he couldn't walk on his own. So let's go to, and he was also full of sores um, and basically couldn't move because the dogs were there to lick him. And here's the, here's the thing, is when we read that the, full of sores who was laid at the gate, he was desiring, verse 21, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. He desired to be fed by the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table which means he probably was a malnourished person. And the fact that these dogs, and I'm not talking about dogs like in America where we put them in a backpack and a stroller, they're all clean and they look nice. I'm talking about mangy dogs that had no food themselves, that had lice, that had fleas, that had mange, would come and lick his sores. He probably didn't have enough energy to even push them away. So that's how this man is living day to day. Okay, let's go to verse number 22. So then it says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So the beggar died. Beggars didn't have any money. So what happened? They were usually dumped in the garbage heap. And if they weren't dumped in a garbage heap because they had no money, they would actually just be eaten by dogs. So that was his existence at the end. But the nice thing is he did have an angel angelic escort to heaven. It says that the angels carried him into the glories of heaven to Abraham's bosom. So it says that he was carried uh, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And then it goes on and it says this. First of all, remember, Abraham was the father of the faith. Second of all, it would be an honor to be in the presence of Abraham. So it says, then the rich man goes on and says, the rich man also died and was buried. Here's the difference. The rich man also died and was buried. So he had a ceremony of something. You know, like in America, if you have a ceremony for someone, you go to a church or a temple, and then you tell you all these great things. People probably showed up. They probably had the most expensive clothes on. They probably smelled great with perfume. They probably had the best cars or whatever of, the, of their day if it was today, right? Flowers, and they were probably praising this gentleman because he was wealthy. But we know that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and there's no one good, no, not one. So, He did have a service of sorts. And so ultimately, he had the money and he had the means. But unlike Joseph of Arimathea, he did not give up his tomb. So let's go to verse 23. Verse 23, it says this, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. First of all, it says, And being in torments. Hell is a place of torment and not just one torment torments it's plural there will be torments in hell and if you think about it it says he looked up and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his bosom so first of all he recognized Abraham and he recognized Lazarus he knew who Lazarus was right and saw him in the bosom of Abraham. And if you think about it, a a scene flashed into my mind, which is like the Apostle John, because when they used to eat, they used to recline, they used to sit there and they would eat with their hands, like the Apostle John reclining on the chest of Jesus. Right now Lazarus is the honored guest of Abraham at his bosom, sort of as a banquet guest up in heaven. So the man who had actually hoped for, for crumbs in his life now is living in heaven in a banquet. So then it goes on to say verse number 24. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented. So first of all, he says, have mercy on me. A man who had no mercy asked for mercy even though he had no mercy on Lazarus. And then he still thinks like he thought on earth. What did he say? Send Lazarus. He still sees Lazarus as the beggar, as the slave, as beneath him. And he's in hell. And he's telling Abraham to send Lazarus to get him some water. And not only that, if you think about the misery that he's in, he's being tormented by the flame if you think about the sensuality of our bodies and our senses, the misery in hell will be even greater. Our senses will be heightened. So he still hasn't changed. So let's go to verse number 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are in torment. First of all, he says, son, remember. You will remember in hell. You will remember all the opportunities that you had and didn't take, all the things that you did in life that you squandered, all the opportunities. It's an emotional misery, not just physical torment, but emotional torment. You will remember your lifetime. You'll remember everything in hell. And he squandered his life and he's in torment. So let's go to verse number 26. It says, and besides all this, excuse me. So it says, but Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, there is between us, there is a great gulf so that you cannot pass from here unto you, cannot, excuse me, you who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there, past to us. So you can't go back and forth is basically what he's saying. And so we know that people in hell are in hell. People in heaven are in heaven. There's no going back and forth. Number Verse 27, he said this. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. So now he's begging, just like we had a beggar in front of his house. But he wants them to send Lazarus to his father's house. He still hasn't learned. The person who is unregenerated in this life will be the same person in hell. And he's now wanting to send him to his father's house. When you're in hell, it's too late to worry about your loved ones down here. You will have eternal regret. It's horrible to have that kind of regret and live with it. So do any of us have loved ones here that we need to speak to to avoid hell? So while we're living, because tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us so now let's go on to verse 29 he says Abraham said to him they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and he said no father I'm reading 32 uh, 29 30 and he said no father Abraham but if he go if one goes to them from the dead they will repent so he told them he told the rich man he has Moses and the prophets. The rich man had every opportunity to read the Old Testament, to listen to the Old Testament, to go to temple. But he chose not to do that. Everyone has an opportunity while they're alive to choose to believe the, temple, to, to choose to believe the Bible or not believe it. Everyone has the same opportunity, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. So then it goes on to say this. He says, Verse 31, but he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through the the one rise from the dead. And remember, Jesus is telling the story. He's going to rise from the dead. He knows they're not going to listen to him after he rises. And we know that here today. And the other thing is he's going to raise someone by the same name, Lazarus, in a few chapters down. And guess what? After he raises Lazarus, what do they want to do? They want to kill him. So he already knows what's going to happen. So God knows all these things. So John Piper said this about this passage. He says, the greatest lesson to learn from this story is that when death comes knocking at your door, there's only one thing that matters, our relationship with Jesus Christ. What good would it be for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. The truth is, if we perish, and if we live apart from God during our time on earth, he will grant us our wish for all of eternity. One pastor put it this way, if you board the train of unbelief, you will have to take the train all the way to its final destination. In closing, it takes a lot more effort to go to hell than go to heaven. To go to hell, you have to consciously rebel against God your entire life. You have to rebel against those who are praying for you. You have to rebel against creation. You have to rebel against history. You have to rebel against the archaeology, against the martyrs, against the disciples. You have to rebel against the evangelists. You have to rebel against pastors, missionaries. You have to rebel against your own consciousness. And most insulting of all, you have, you must rebel against Jesus Christ and the blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. So as Christians, we know that God is loving. He wants all people to be saved and he wants us all to come to the knowledge of the truth. To go to heaven is not a lot of work. We know it's not by works. And all people all people have to do is to confess their sins and to believe in his son. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Lastly, It's said that evangelist D.L. Moody used to preach about the topic of hell. And when he did so, he did so with a weeping heart and tears in his eyes. And Charles Spurgeon spoke these words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, Let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are listening to this message and for those that don't know you. I pray they will somehow come to know you by the pull of the Holy Spirit or by godly conviction. Lord, we know that you are the one who calls us to repentance and salvation and we know that you don't want anyone to perish. Please Help us to be the light of the world. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to tell people about Jesus. And I pray that all those who hear this message will come to Jesus. And may they lay aside all their pride and preconceived notions. And may they repent of their sins and believe in your son Jesus to be in heaven in eternity with you. Amen.